from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, we talk Lucentis with Phil Rosenfeld. Ranibizumab is an antibody antigen binding fragment. It's actually one of the binding arms of a full-length antibody. It's derived from a mouse monoclonal antibody that was developed against vascular endothelial growth factors. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Phil Rosenfeld declares consulting fees from Genentech, Protein Design Labs, Novartis, and iTech, and contracted research for Genentech, Novartis, iTech, and Alcon. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I've put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. There is a revolution underway in the manner in which we treat choroidal neovascularization. New therapies target angiogenesis signaling factors like VEGF, allowing us to combat both its vascular permeability and neovascular effects. One agent that made a big splash last year was Avastin, an agent used off-label for neovascular AMD. Now Lucentis, or Ranibizumab, a close cousin, if not quite derivative of Avastin, is available. But what is Lucentis, and how does it differ from Avastin? To bring us up to speed, I'd like to welcome back Phil Rosenfeld. Welcome back, Phil. Just to start out broadly, what are the negative effects that VEGF has? Well, VEGF is known to be a permeability factor, and VEGF is known to cause blood vessels to grow. While VEGF may be an important factor for normal physiologic processes like wound healing and ovulation, when VEGF is overproduced in the eye, it causes abnormal blood vessels to grow either in the macula or on the retinal surface or into the vitreous or on the iris or in the trabecular meshwork. And when blood vessels grow in these areas, they cause diseases. What is ranibizumab and how does it work? Ranibizumab is an antibody antigen binding fragment. It's actually one of the binding arms of a full-length antibody. It's derived from a mouse monoclonal antibody that was developed against vascular endothelial growth factor. It's been genetically modified and produced in bacteria so that it binds VEGF with a higher affinity. Its molecular weight is about 48,000 Dalton compared to a full-length antibody, which has a molecular weight of about 149,000 Dalton. So it's one third the size of a full-length antibody, and it's been modified by changing six amino acids in the binding domain, so it has a higher affinity than the comparable antigen-binding fragment that would be derived from the molecule Avastin. It's also important to know that Lucentis 
ranibizumab is not derived directly from an antibody. It's not as if Genentech takes an antibody and proteolizes it to obtain the fragment. It's actually genetically engineered produced in bacteria as a standalone drug, not proteolized from a full-length antibody. What is the relationship between ranibizumab and Avastin? Both Avastin and ranibizumab, or we should use their commercial name, Avastin and Lucentis are both derived from the same mouse monoclonal antibody. But to humanize a mouse monoclonal antibody, what the Genentech scientists do is they clone the different parts of an antibody. They clone the antigen binding fragments and they clone the FC portion of the antibody and then they exchange certain amino acids so that it becomes more human-like. Then to make Avastin, they reassemble that antibody from one of the clones that's known as FAB12, that's FAB-12. Well, that same FAB12 clone was then used and modified through a process called affinity maturation to develop Lucentis. And six amino acids was, were changed in the binding domain of the variable and the heavy regions of the FAB fragment to create this Lucentis molecule. Compared to the original FAB12, Lucentis binds VEGF with about 140-fold higher affinity. So the FAB, the FAB binding site on Lucentis, is different from the FAB binding site on Avastin? That's correct. The whole Avastin molecule compares to the Lucentis molecule by having two binding sites on the full-length Avastin molecule and by having an overall affinity that's somewhere between five and tenfold lower than the Lucentis molecule. So Lucentis has a higher affinity compared to Avastin, about five to tenfold higher affinity, but it only has one binding domain. And it's a different binding domain. It differs by about six amino acids than the binding domain that's found on the Avastin molecule. What advantages, in theory, does Lucentis have over Avastin? We don't know if either molecule has an advantage over the other molecule. That's why we need to test the molecules head-to-head. There may be certain diseases like neovascular age-related macular degeneration where Lucentis may perform better because it probably penetrates the retina better and it has a slightly higher affinity. But perhaps it gets cleared from the vitreous and from the retina faster than a full-length antibody. So we don't know if that potential for better penetration and higher affinity really equates to increased effectiveness of the molecule. Then there are other diseases like proliferative diabetic retinopathy or neovascular age-related macular degeneration or even retinopathy of prematurity where penetration of the retina isn't necessary. And perhaps the two binding domains in the avastin and the longer intravitreal half-life may make avastin the better molecule. So I think all these possibilities need to be tested. And from our clinical experience, we're already getting a great deal of knowledge on the use of avastin. I'm sure over the next year, we're going to learn a lot about Lucentis as well. But at least in theory, by being smaller, Lucentis should have better penetrance than avastin does. 
Isn't that right? I, I mean, that's the reason that Genentech developed Lucentis, isn't it? Genentech developed Lucentis for three principal reasons. One, they made it smaller to get better retinal penetration. Two, they removed the FC portion because they were concerned about complement-mediated cytotoxicity that is regulated through the FC portion, and they were worried about overall inflammation in the eye. And the third reason was they had safety concerns. They felt that if the fab escaped into the systemic circulation, it would be rapidly metabolized, but a full-length antibody would probably stay in the systemic circulation for a longer period of time. Now, these were reasonable assumptions, but none of these assumptions were ever tested at the time that Lucentis was developed. So there's no model at all right now, animal model, to suggest that a molecule that has better penetration has better efficacy. There's no model right now to show that, in fact, Avastin has less inflammation associated with injection compared to Lucentis. And our clinical experience suggests that there's no significant inflammation associated with Avastin. And that may be because it's produced in eukaryotic cells and it's glycosylated while Lucentis is produced in bacteria cells. And then when it comes to the risk of systemic exposure, once again, we have no clinical experience with Avastin to suggest that there's a systemic risk associated with injecting a small amount of drug into the vitreal cavity. And in fact, a paper recently came out and we use the internet to tr sort of track uh, the safety issues that could have been associated with AVAS and came out in the British Journal of Ophthalmology in July. And right now, there's no obvious safety signals that are surfacing with the use of AVAS. So while there were valid assumptions that were used to develop Lucentis, to, at this time, there's really no hard data to support these assumptions. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of experiments over the next year in an attempt to demonstrate superiority of Lucentis over Avastin. And the reason that Avastin is better than a molecule like Lucentis for systemic use is that the full-length antibody is metabolized more slowly than an antibody fragment is. Uh, that is correct. Lucentis would never be used for systemic therapy. And the most likely reason why it wouldn't be used is it just doesn't hang around long enough and you'd have to use too much of it. In fact, I went through the calculation that if you had to infuse Lucentis at the same dose that you use Avastin, we're talking between 10 and $20 million a year for the therapy. So just from a price standpoint alone, you wouldn't be able to treat patients with Lucentis. Prior to your study, what evidence existed that Lucentis works? Well, the data is overwhelming that Lucentis is a highly effective and safe molecule. Um, the phase two data clearly showed that somewhere around 40% of patients with just six months of follow-up gained three lines or more. And this data was pretty much supported by the phase three experimental results in the MARINA and the ANCHOR studies. Between 30 and 40% of patients gained three lines or more. We saw overall visual acuity gains and between 10 and 12 letters. I mean, we've never seen this kind of efficacy before for any treatment involving wet macular degeneration. Phil, can I have you describe the design of the phase one, two, and I guess now phase three studies? Well, the phase one, two studies were typical phase one, two studies in which 
doses were increased until um, maximum tolerated dose was identified, and then those doses were 0.3 and 0.5 milligrams. And in the phase two studies, those doses were explored along with an escalating dose regimen that went up to two milligrams. And to just summarize the phase one, two studies, the treatment was shown to be safe and highly effective and strongly supported further phase three three research. In the phase three studies, the two primary studies, the studies that got the census approved were the MARINA and the ANCHOR studies. In the MARINA studies, patients received monthly injections of Lucentis for two years, and those patients had minimally classic and occult choroidal neovascularization secondary to age-related macular degeneration. In the ANCHOR study, those patients had predominantly classic choroidal neovascularization. In the MARINA study, patients were treated with Lucentis or they were given a sham treatment. They were randomized and the study was masked. In the ANCHOR trial, patients were either treated with photodynamic therapy or they received an injection of Lucentis. In both studies, two different doses of Lucentis were used, either the 0.3 milligram dose or the 0.5 milligram dose. So, to summarize, patients were enrolled in the study with a particular form of neovascular age-related macular degeneration. They were randomized to receive either a sham injection or one of two different doses of Lucentis. So they were randomized one to one to one. And in the ANCHOR trial, the control group was treated with photodynamic therapy. So we have a direct comparison between photodynamic therapy and Lucentis. And in the MARINA trial, they were randomized to a sham injection. And when I say a sham injection, they were prepped as if they were getting an injection. And then the syringe was pressed up against the eye, but no needle was actually used on the syringe. While we're on the topic of injections, Phil, what is your technique for intravitreal injection? Well, there's no right or wrong answer in how people proceed with intravitreal injections because there are a lot of unknown answers to questions about the best overall procedure. But what I can tell you is we generally do not use pre-injection antibiotics. We treat the eye with betadine. We clean the eyelids with betadine. We put betadine drops in the eye. We then use topical anesthesia, both before the betadine and after the betadine. We do not inject uh, lidocaine under the conjunctiva. Rather, we soak a, um, a swab with lidocaine and press at the site where we're going to inject. We always use a sterile lid speculum. And we press on the eye with the uh, lidocaine soak swab two or three times, about 15 to 20 seconds each time. And that's performed just to uh, anesthetize the injection site, as well as to soften the eye prior to the injection. And then we measure back approximately 3.5 millimeters posterior to the limbus, and we inject the 50 microliters or 0.05 milliliters of Lucentis into the vitreal cavity. And then we usually use an antibiotic post-injection. And the antibiotic of choice is variable depending upon the small samples that we get from different companies. Right now we're using Vigamox four times a day for three days after an injection. Whether an antibiotic post-injection is necessary is um, 
a contentious topic, and there's no right answer to that. Phil, I want to deal with the safety of this medication. Um, was safety something that was investigated just in the phase one, two trials, or is that something that you looked at in the phase three trial also? In the phase one study, we identified that those limiting toxic response from a lucentis injection to be intraocular inflammation. That was observed at the one milligram dose, and that's why the 0.5 milligram dose became the maximum tolerated dose. We never really got a good dose response curve, so um, right now we really don't know what the maximum dose might be to get the best durability of response. But we do know that the maximum tolerated dose is 0.5 milligrams. Um, Genentech then decided to test two different doses, and this was agreed upon with the FDA, and the two doses were 0.3 milligrams and 0.5 milligrams, and all subsequent studies have used both of those doses. No systemic toxicity has been identified with Lucentis, and the only significant ocular adverse event that is noteworthy is this low-grade inflammation that can occur following an injection of Lucentis. And it's interesting in that Lucentis was developed to minimize the risk of inflammation, yet it seems as though we see more inflammation with the Lucentis, although low-grade inflammation, than we've been seeing with the AVAS. Phil, why do you think that it causes inflammation? The inflammation is very interesting. It tends to peak three days after an injection, and it really is a very low-grade inflammation that clears on its own, and steroids aren't necessary, and antibiotics aren't necessary. And it very rarely mimics an inflammation that would be confused with endophthalmitis. There were very, very few cases of that type of inflammation, just one, two cases in the phase three clinical trial. Usually it's one to two plus inflammation that you can see if you look within the first week. But if you bring a patient back a month after an injection or even two weeks after an injection, maybe even a week after an injection, you may never see that low-grade inflammation. And it doesn't really cause pain and it doesn't really affect the visual acuity. Most likely, it's a protein response to Lucentis. And what's interesting in the phase one, two studies, if someone had inflammation with the first injection, the inflammation usually went away with subsequent injections. So there seemed to be some uh, tolerability that developed in the eye, and no one really understands the immunologic mechanism behind that. Probably some kind of T suppressor cell is involved. Uh, one other possibility is that there's some contaminant that co purifies with the protein from the bacterial culture where the protein is made. But we have no idea if that's the case. Or not. Phil, with the dual doses, do the patients who got the higher dose do better than the patients with the lower dose? Well, there seemed to be some dose dependency in that the 0.5 milligram dose group in the phase two trial seemed to be doing slightly better than the 0.3 milligram dose group. And that's why, in conjunction with the FDA, Genentech decided to market the 0.5 milligram dose group because it didn't seem to have any increased risk of ocular adverse events. And there certainly wasn't an increase in the systemic adverse events, which were minimal and not thought to be related to the drug. So the 0.5 milligram dose is the commercially available dose. Did the 0.5 dose last longer than the 0.3 dose in terms of the duration of effect? We really don't know if the higher dose had a greater duration of effect because patients received an injection every month for two years. There was no attempt to see whether one dose had a greater durability than the other.
Did any of the patients from the study demonstrate CRVO? It's my recollection that there was no evidence of central retinal vein occlusion or central retinal artery occlusion during the course of the study. From the phase 1-2 study, 5.7% of patients had vitreous hemorrhage. How large were these vitreous hemorrhages, Phil? Well, vitreous hemorrhage was very rare in any of these studies. And back when the phase 1-2 studies were done, there could have been many explanations for why someone might develop a vitreous hemorrhage. It could have been from the injection technique or it may have been from the lesion itself. Um, as we've progressed through the years, we've gotten much better in our injection technique. And the cases that were studied in the phase three trial weren't nearly as advanced as the end stage cases that we studied in the phase one and early phase two trials. So I really don't think that your hemorrhage is very significant at all. Um, we even inject patients on Coumadin and we don't have any problem following an injection when a patient's on Coumadin. Phil, you touched on the results from phase three. Can I have you go over those results in a little more detail? The first phase three study was the Marina study, and that was the study looking at minimally classic and occult coronal neovascularization, where patients got either 0.3 milligram or 0.5 milligrams of Lucentis every month for two years. And the primary efficacy outcome of the Marina study was the ability to avoid a 15-letter vision loss which is avoiding three lines of vision loss or trying to prevent a worsening of the vision from 2050 to 2100 or 2100 to 2200. So we're trying to prevent a doubling of the visual acuity following treatment. Now, preventing vision loss was always the understood outcome in phase three clinical trials with retinacular generation. But what was so amazing about the Lucentis trials is that the new endpoint that everyone's going to use at this point forward is the ability to improve vision. Because at the end of one year, 95% um, of patients were stable or improved where they avoided a 15-letter vision loss compared to 62% in the sham-treated group. And at two years, the numbers were 92% and 90% for the 0.3 and 0.5 milligram group versus 53% for the sham group. So it was highly statistically significant about 18 zeros after the decimal point for the p-value. So it was incredibly convincing data. And overall, patients in this study gained between six and seven letters in the two Lucentis dose groups compared to the sham group, which lost 10 letters of visual acuity. So there was three lines of difference between the two groups, between 16 and 17 letters with five letters per line. So three line difference between the groups. So there was an overall difference in, in preventing a doubling of the visual acuity. Not only that, that difference at 12 months was sustained through 24 months. And if you look at those patients that gained any vision from baseline, about 75% of patients at 12 months gained any vision from baseline versus 70% of patients at two years. So not only is this treatment effect dramatic at one year, it's pretty much sustained through 24 months. And then if you look at that population, which was 2,200 or worse, there was a dramatic difference between the sham treatment group and the Lucentis treatment group, in that only about 11% of patients were 2,200 or worse 
versus between 40 and 45 percent of patients in the sham treatment group at both 12 and 24 months. And if you look at that population, which was 20, 40 or better, you know, the ability to actually get a driver's license, we have only about 10 percent of the sham treated group at month 12 versus about 40 percent of the patients who received Lucentis at month 12. And at month 24, dropped to 6% of the sham were 20, 40 or better, compared to between 35 and 40% of patients at month 24 without Lucentis. So it's a dramatic difference in whether you got sham or whether you got Lucentis. And this was associated with a marked decrease in leakage from the cordial neovascularization. And the area of leakage and area of lesion growth was dramatically decreased as well. So not only was there a visual acuity benefit, but this was associated with an anatomic benefit as well. So every piece of data, no matter how you look at it, no matter how you cut it, whether it's based on baseline visual acuity or baseline age or the size of the lesion at baseline, the treatment benefit was seen across all subgroups. So this isn't just cherry picking, it's just not a subgroup analysis as we've seen in other clinical studies. We're looking at an effect across all patients, all lesion types, and all subgroups within the patient population. Phil, how much of the improvement do you think was due to the anti-angiogenic properties of Lucentis as opposed to the anti-permeability functions? Most of the vision benefit, I think, comes from the anti-permeability properties of Lucentis. However, there are a significant number of cases in which the lesions actually stopped growing and retracted, and the lesions got smaller. So there's a benefit for both, and it's hard to say at this point in time without a detailed analysis of the fluorescein angiograms, which one played a more important role. But my gut feeling tells me that it's more the permeability influence rather than an influence on the actual size of the lesion that's responsible for the improved visual acuity. Did the improvement vary by lesion type? Well, we haven't done a detailed analysis, but it would appear as though it works across all lesion types. And we got better visual acuity improvement in the predominantly classic population. For example, there was between an 8 and 11 letter increase at 12 months for the predominantly classic compared to the PDT group, which lost 10 letters. So there's almost a four-line difference between the PDT group and the Lucentis group. But you've got to understand that predominantly classic lesions tend to be more aggressive lesions. They tend to grow faster, they tend to leak more, and the average visual acuity getting into the study for the predominantly classic lesions was worse. For the minimally classic and occult lesions, they were, they were about 2080, where the patients with predominantly classic were about 2125. So when patients see worse, there's always a better chance of getting some vision improvement. So when you start off with a population that has lower visual acuity, it may just be that they have a better chance of seeing better, or it may be dependent on the lesion type. None of the patients from this studies developed antibodies to Lucentis. Why does this matter? One of the concerns whenever you use a protein as a drug is that the body may develop immunoreactivity against the protein, and thus you may develop antibodies against the drug and decrease the amount of available drug that you need in order to treat the neovascular AMD. So if antibodies did develop, you might find that while the drug is effective at first, the efficacy decreases over time. And with injections every month over two years, 
you would think that if antibodies are going to develop, they would have developed. And if there was going to be a detrimental effect from immunoreactivity, we would have seen it in the data. But as you said, immunoreactivity was not a problem, and the data was consistent from month 12 to month 24. Phil, we started this interview talking about the theoretical advantages of Lucentis over Avast and for intravitreal use. Do we know whether in practice those advantages hold up? Well, what we need to compare Lucentis and Avast is a head-to-head clinical trial. And it's my understanding that that trial has been submitted to the National Institutes of Health. And the NEI is considering whether that study is going to move forward at this point in time. Um, right now, we have two drugs available to us. We have a drug that's been designed specifically for wet macular degeneration and studied extensively in phase one, two, and three clinical trials. It's been shown to be safe, and it's FDA approved. We also have another drug that's been used off-label, and we have extensive clinical experience now, not only in this country, but all over the world. Fortunately, we have two options, one for patients that have insurance, or have the wealth to afford Lucentis, and one drug for those patients that may not be able to afford Lucentis. It's the best of all possible worlds. So no one throughout the world will go without some form of therapy for their neovascular disease. Phil, what do you do in your own practice when a patient with neovascular age-related macular degeneration comes in? Whenever a patient comes in with a disease like neovascular AMD, you have to explain the disease to the patient. And you have to give them the appropriate expectation. Now, with Lucentis, the expectation from every patient who comes in is that they're going to see better, their vision will be restored, and that they're going to be driving their car. And obviously, that's not the case. In fact, whenever I talk to a reporter regarding Lucentis or Avastin, I always stress the point that the treatment effect depends upon the patient, the stage of their disease, how long they've had the disease how much vision has been lost, and whether the photoreceptors are still there. So if you resorb the fluid, the patient will be able to see better. Unfortunately, the story that always seems to get out in the press is that the patient's vision is going to get better. And in fact, there was an article down here in which the headline was, the census restores vision. Okay? And that just leads to a great deal of disappointment on everyone's part because we want to help our patient. They come in expecting their vision to be restored. And the patient gets very disappointed because everyone has sent them these articles and these advertising clips telling them that their vision is going to get better. So the first step is always to educate the patient about their disease and what the expectation is without therapy and what the hope is with therapy and, in particular, the need for long-term therapy. And I think we're appreciating that based on our clinical trials with Lucentis following our patients from the phase one to now four to five years out and our experience with Avastin, that if you can keep patients seeing reasonably well, they're probably going to need chronic therapy for the rest of their lives with an occasional patient that can go a long period of time without therapy. Once you establish what their disease is and what the expectations should be, then comes the discussion about what drug would be most appropriate for them. Some patients come in with predefined notion of which drug they want. Um, the general consensus among my Medicare patients with secondary insurance is that the more expensive drug, the drug that's FDA approved, is probably the better drug, and they have a sense of entitlement that um, they've lived this long, they've paid their taxes, they have the secondary insurance, they're entitled to the more expensive drug. 
And after an extensive discussion, many of my patients are choosing Lucentis when they have neovascular AMD. Some patients are choosing Avastin. And when I have a patient has to pay for the therapy from outside the United States, almost everyone is choosing Avastin to start off with. Now, for those diseases in which Lucentis and Avastin are both being used off-label, other forms of neovascularization involving the macula, like myopic macular degeneration or histoplasmosis or angioid streaks, and those patients that may have non-clearing vitreous hemorrhages with chronic leakage and proliferation of new vessels, patients with neovascular glaucoma, these other off-label reasons why we may use either Avastin or Lucentis. Almost all of those patients are getting Avastin after our discussion because Lucentis is just too expensive. Phil, thank you very much. Sure thing. Phil Rosenfeld is professor of ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. His papers, Tolerability and Efficacy of Multiple Escalating Doses of Ranibizumab Lucentis for Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration and Ranibizumab for Treatment of Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration, a Phase 1-2 Multicenter Controlled Multidose Study, appear in the April 2006 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Rosenfeld or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.